Hi, friends. How are we doing today? Thanks for being here. This morning, we continue a series studying the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John records seven letters written by Jesus to seven first century churches. In these letters, Jesus warns, he instructs, he encourages each church community, telling them what he thinks about their faith. Now, as we study these letters together, we're asking Jesus to examine our faith so we can learn what they learned. In fact, let's do so right now. Can you pray with me? Lord, this morning we pray the prayer of the psalmist. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Examine our thoughts, our anxious thoughts, our angry thoughts. See if there's anything in us that isn't good or loving. And lead us to live a life of grace and truth. We pray this in the name of King Jesus, who came to live among us full of grace and truth. Amen. What's the scariest thing in your bathroom? In case you didn't know, you should be terrified. According to the Paranoid's Pocket Guide, approximately 200,000 serious bathroom injuries occur in the United States each year. Statistics show one in 6,500 Americans will be injured by a toilet seat during their lifetime. Most will be men. (laughs) Did you know, every time you dry off with a towel, dead skin cells cling to its surface, providing protein to feed microorganisms such as Staphylococcus aureus, which can cause infection and pustules. Even the clean towel you use tonight will be crawling with microorganisms come morning. Most accidents that occur in the bathroom are burns or falls or electric shocks, but most accidents are not likely to be what you fear most. Most, uh, For most of us, the microbes thriving in the room down the hall won't leave us sleepless at night. But for many Americans, maybe this is true for you, the scariest thing in your bathroom is the bathroom scale. Now, the reason... You fear the scale. The reason you hate the scale is because it tells you the truth. Did you know scales at doctor's offices are calibrated to automatically add five pounds to your weight? Now, that's not true, but some you just got your hopes up, didn't you? (laughs) When you go to the doctor's office and the nurse instructs you to step onto the scale, you pause to remove all possible clothing and jewelry because your flip-flops easily add eight pounds. When the number displays, you make the comment, that's not what my scale at home says. Naturally, the nurse makes note of that in your chart. We hate 
a scale because it tells us the truth. It conveys the reality of our condition in spite of how we feel, in spite of how we, how, what we want to hear. But what if the thing we hate most is the thing we need most? A scale is a truth teller. You may want to tuck it under the bed, but maybe you should move it into your kitchen. Two thousand years ago, there was a church in a city called Pergamum that learned the importance of truth tellers, people who candidly speak truth into our lives. And today, I think we do well to learn alongside them. Grace without truth isn't love. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John records a vision of Jesus. In that vision, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. But these letters read a little differently than other New Testament letters. They're filled with striking images and apocalyptic warnings. And they all begin with a description of Jesus himself. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, whenever I read about a sword in the New Testament, I'm reminded of, of a sword mentioned a little earlier in the first century church, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's word is alive. It's dynamic. When God speaks, if we allow his words to sink into our souls, he interacts with us there. His word is like a sword. I think I'd prefer a scalpel or a knife. But he says God's word is like a sword. And not just any sword. He speaks of a double-edged sword, which is the sharpest sword. And God's message of truth is sharper than the sharpest sword. No armor can withstand it. It cuts to the very core of who you are. But not to do damage. It penetrates to cleanse and to heal. The text says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I find I'm often blinded to my true motives and attitudes. But the truth of God's word can show me things about myself that I can't see. He can show me how fussy I've been lately. He can show me how easily annoyed I've been lately. But there's probably more going on in the text than a, sh a mere reference to God's word. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. You see, the Roman governor of this province in Asia governed in Pergamum. And the governor was given the right of Iusclidi. Now, Iusclidi from Rome means you are given the right of the sword. It's the power of life and death. Iusclidi gave the governor permission to administer capital punishment within his jurisdiction. Now, as we discussed earlier in our series, these introductory descriptions of Jesus offer a truth about himself that's especially relevant to the specific church. The church at Pergamum faces a terrible fear. They live right under the nose of the Roman governor who has the authority to take their lives with no questions asked. He holds the right of the sword. But in his opening words to the church at Pergamum, Jesus reminds them, my sword is bigger. Can you think of a Roman governor in the New Testament made famous for his eusclidi, his right to execute? John 19, verse 10. 
Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? What did Jesus say in response? Verse 11, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Back to Revelation 2. Jesus says, I know where you live. (laughs) From our contemporary context, it sounds like a threat, but it's not. Each letter in Revelation follows a pattern. The second sentence of each letter begins, I know. Jesus has said, I know your deeds. He said, I know your suffering. Here he says, I know where you live. And he elaborates, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. There's a town in the upper Midwest known as Hell, Michigan. Have any of you ever been there? Boasting a population of 266, the city threw a party on June 6th, 2006, 666, the town's unofficial mayor and souvenir shop owner sold t-shirts and mugs on that day for $6.66. For the same low price, you could even purchase one square inch of property in Hell, Michigan. But somehow I think circumstances are a bit more serious And Pergamum. Jesus describes Pergamum as a location of Satan's throne. Now, when he says throne of Satan, it might be a reference to the abundance of temples to Roman gods throughout the city, but he probably refers to the imperial cult. Pergamum was the center for Caesar worship in the east. Here in Pergamum, Roman residents would stand once a year before a bust of Caesar, the reigning king in Rome. They would pinch off a little incense, throw it into the fire while declaring Caesar is Lord. Now, a follower of Jesus who believed Jesus is Lord would have trouble doing that. But the entire city would have had a problem with the follower of Jesus not doing that. They would have seen it as blasphemy and sedition. It's likely the church felt more pressure to worship Caesar in Pergamum than any of the other six churches will study. No wonder Jesus called it Satan's throne. He says, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. The Greek word translated remain true means to hold fast or grasp forcefully. Even in a hostile environment, even in enemy territory, the believers at Pergamum have clung to their faith without letting go. Jesus adds, verse 13, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We know only a little about Antipas. He's mentioned by the second century theologian Tertullian. Later church tradition claims he was slowly roasted to death inside a brass bowl. We can't say with certainty what happened to Antipas, but we know he stayed true to Jesus To the end, Jesus calls him a faithful witness, which is the same title Jesus uses of himself in Revelation chapter 1. What an honor for Antipas to bear the same designation. The church at Pergamum has mostly modeled their faith after the faith of Antipas. They've courageously cleaved to Jesus in spite of their environment. But, and here comes the but, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Let's talk about Balaam. 
Now, you can read the story of Balaam in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. Balaam was a Gentile prophet hired to curse the Israelites by Balak, the king of Moab. Now, this is a strange Old Testament story. Every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, God only gives him words of blessing. It's like Balaam is unable to curse God's people, even though he wants to. His story, however, tells us nothing about his teaching. Jesus says he taught Balach how to entice the Israelites to sin. Here's what happened in Israel some thousand plus years earlier. Numbers 25 verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before the gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now, the men of Israel didn't stumble into this sin by accident. They were intentionally enticed. There's no mention of Balaam in Numbers 25, but Moses identifies the culprit in Numbers 31, verse 16. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord and the Peor incident. Okay, Balaam, it seems advised the Moabite king to use women to seduce Israelite men into participating in their religious feasts, which often included sexual rituals. The idea was this. If you can't kill them, tempt them. And it worked. The Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord. Now, fast forward many centuries to New Testament times. In those days, writers began to use the description teaching of Balaam to illustrate a culture of compromise. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle Peter writes, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. Now, let's return to Pergamum. The circumstances in first century Pergamum are similar to the Israelites in the book of Numbers. Satan, whose throne is in Pergamum, says... If you can't kill them, tempt them. Threatening the faithful with the sword didn't work. They held on to their faith. So Satan uses a subtler, indirect attack. He raises up a new Balaam, verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, most scholars agree this isn't a second group of false teachers in addition to the new Balaam. This is the proper identification of that new Balaam. See, just like the Moabites, the Romans used feasts and immoral rituals in their worship to the gods. The Nicolaitans, whoever they are, reasoned, it's okay to compromise. Living it up at the spring festival at Dionysius, it's fine. You're not hurting anyone. So what? Who cares? Maybe they bent some of the Apostle Paul's teaching toward accommodation. Hey, you're not under law. You're under grace. So give yourself a little bit of that grace. What would Paul say to that? Well, he dealt with a similar line of thinking in his day, Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, the problem in Pergamum was a spirit of compromise, an attitude of accommodation. 
But what Jesus is calling out is more acute than that. Of course, Jesus wants the people who are phoning in their faith to stop it. But not everyone's phoning in their faith. Remember, Jesus just commended them for holding on. It seems the majority of the people in the church of Pergamum remained unsoiled by the temptations of the Nicolaitans. But they are guilty. They're guilty of allowing the teaching and practices to go on unchecked and unbridled. Think about what we've learned in the letter so far. In our, the first week of our study, we saw the church at Ephesus is confronted for their lack of love. Here in this letter, the church at Pergamum is confronted for their lack of truth. Let me say it differently. Consider our idea of tolerance. Both churches got it wrong, but for opposite reasons. Ephesus rightly rejected heresy, but with a harsh intolerance. They lacked grace. Pergamum was so tolerant, they were unwilling to call out false teachers and sinful living. They lacked truth. Well, Jesus wants the church at Pergamum to understand grace without truth isn't love. Grace without truth isn't love. And biblical community, the follower of Jesus, has a responsibility to his or her brothers and sisters to speak truth with love. And we have a shared obligation to hold one another accountable. Here's how Paul says it to another church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Faith in Christ Jesus was never meant to be attempted alone in the privacy of your own home. Faith in Christ Jesus is designed to be lived out within a community where you can learn to love, a community where you can be encouraged and helped and warned. The ancient sages said it well, Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Theoretically, this sounds like a great idea. We imagine surrounding ourselves with mentors who will coach us to become better leaders, teach us how to make more money, slide us tips on becoming a better spouse, a better parent. It sounds delightful. Sometimes it is delightful, but usually it stinks. It hurts to be sharpened. When you sharpen a knife, there's friction. That friction is what sharpens the knife. But does anybody think how the knife feels? It is probably not pleasant for the sharpener either. It's not easy to hear the truth about yourself. In our minds, we've created a version of reality, a version of who we are and who we aren't, and we go to great lengths to protect that self-concept. But the truth is, we've often, we're often blinded by our need to feel good about ourselves. We're blinded by our need to be right, to be the best. Maybe you struggle with pride and don't know it. Maybe you've latched onto a destructive habit, a habit that's changing you and you can't see it. Maybe you have an attitude, a weakness, a blind spot that's preventing you from thriving. But you'll never see it unless someone shows you. 
Whoever has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. Maybe you need to deliberately develop accountable community. Some in the church at Pergamum sure did. But others just needed to speak up. Because grace without truth isn't love. Let me ask. Is there anyone in your life to whom you've given grace but withheld truth? Often, it's someone close to you. A spouse, a parent, a roommate. We desperately need to speak truth to one another. Let me give you a few passages to ponder. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Let's say, for example, you have a friend who's a really great gal, but you've begun to suspect she's developing a drinking problem. Should you say something? Should you begin that conversation? Most of you know it's harder than it looks. Few of us enjoy confrontation, but it's an important part of the community of Jesus, and it's inseparable from love. Earlier this year, I took you to the original commandment of Christ's community, Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. We say it all the time, love your neighbor as yourself, but never forget the command that immediately precedes it in verse 17, rebuke your neighbor frankly. Sometimes love confronts. This doesn't mean we confront every sin we see in our friends. The scriptures bring balance. The Proverbs tell us it's our glory to overlook an offense. Peter tells us love covers over a multitude of sins. Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs. Only the spiritually immature feel the need to confront everyone for every sin, but sometimes love confronts. Is it possible that your decision not to confront a brother or sister could harm them? What if the thing they need most right now is an honest, life-giving rebuke? Some of us have trouble bringing negative feedback. Maybe you're conflict-averse. Maybe you're something of a peacemaker. And hey, God wired you as a peacemaker. It's a wonderful personality trait. I do find, however, that those of us who are peacemakers have difficulty being truth-tellers. It's not that we lie. It's that we hold back. We don't say everything that needs to be said. And when we say something, if we say something, we don't always say it well. We surprise people with our pent-up intensity. What if we got good at being truth-tellers? Here's another passage, Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let's look carefully at a few of these words. The writer of Hebrews says, let's consider. Now, that verb consider is the Greek word katanoeo. Now, katanoeo means to examine in a reflective manner. It means to contemplate. Okay, look back at the verse again. The writer of Hebrews says, let's consider, let's put some serious thought into how we might spur one another on in faith. Now, spur, not a calm word. It's the Greek word 
Paroxysmos. Paroxysmos is an expression of intensity. It means provoke. In other contexts, it's translated irritate. Don't misunderstand me. It's not a license to be a jerk for Jesus. But it is a command to confront when necessary. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Can you think of anyone in our community that you haven't seen in a while? Why not give them a call to check in? Why not pop them an email, jot them a note? I'm not asking you to be the church police. Oh, good night. But maybe God wants to use you to encourage someone in their faith. Is anybody coming to mind? There's one more passage. James 5, verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back... Let me stop right there for a minute. Uh, James is using the metaphor of life as a journey. And he speaks of someone who goes astray, someone who veers from God's path to forge their own path. Now, there are many reasons people wander. People wander when God doesn't live up to their expectations, when God disappoints them. People wander when God, God's way appears less profitable, when God's way starts to cramp their style. People wander when they fall in love with someone who doesn't share the same path. We've seen it again and again and again. James says, my brothers and sisters, verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, literally turn the wayward friend back to God, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. When a fellow believer is used by God to redirect a wanderer, he or she saves him from death. Of course, this doesn't mean that we save them in the same way God saves them. But it does say something about the priority God places on our partnership with them. Have you ever had the privilege of being a part of the process of turning a wayward brother or sister back to Jesus? Friends, you can make a billion dollars. You can climb the corporate ladder. You can climb Mount Everest. But you can't take any of that with you when you die. The only thing you can take with you is people. The only thing you can drag with you into eternity is a friend. So is God calling you to speak up? Is God calling you to speak into someone's life? The truth is, some of us need to hear the next part of the letter to the church at Pergamum. Jesus' instructions to the church at Pergamum matches instructions to the church at Ephesus. He says this in verse 16, repent. Repent, therefore. And he doesn't say this just to the compromisers. He says this to the whole church community. The Greek word for repent, for repent metanoeo, uh, it means to change. It involves a change of heart and mind and behavior. Change the way you think, change the way you act. He says, repent. Ironically, 
the church at Pergamum had the courage to stand up to the world, but it lacked the courage to stand up to a fellow follower of Jesus. Can anybody relate? Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. First notice, Jesus will come to the church as a whole, I'll come to you, but he'll fight against the false teachers, I'll fight against them. Though wrath is reserved for the false teachers, the consequences don't sound pleasant for anyone. So Jesus wants them to sort it out. This is the classic, don't make me come down there warning. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, the other, seven church, the other six churches are reading their mail also. Whoever needs to listen should listen. We'll finish the letter quickly. Verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. If time allowed, we could talk about the multiple theories of what is meant by hidden manna in Jewish traditions. Ultimately, Jesus is probably referring to himself and his teaching because, as he said in John 6, he is the bread of life. Read John 6 for yourself and see what he said. Look at the last part of verse 17. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. New Testament scholars debate the meaning of the white stone. There are two predominant theories among about a dozen. First, in that day, when juries gave verdicts in criminal trials, they would cast stones into an urn, a black stone for a guilty verdict, a white stone for an innocent verdict. However, another cultural reference is more likely. White stones were given as tickets to special feasts and events in Pergamum. The intended meaning for the church may be that their faithfulness will entitle them to admission to the marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned in Revelation 19. The secret name alludes to the intimacy that each faithful disciple will have with Jesus when it's all said and done. And it's there the letter ends. But let me take you back where we started, that phrase. Grace without truth isn't love. Grace without truth isn't love. Is there anything in this message that you need to hear? Maybe you've been resistant to truth. Hey, you don't like people telling you what to do. You don't like to feel controlled. You don't want any church, any religion, any human to be able to speak into your life because you like your freedom. And your freedom is a great thing. Oh, maybe, maybe when you get truth from someone and you hear truth and it, it, is, it hurts, but maybe you perceive it as harming, therefore it's not loving, when in actual fact it might be the thing you desperately need to hear. What if you have been blinded about how your actions are impacting the lives of others? If the roles were reversed, you'd want someone to speak up. What if that person who is speaking into your life right now truly loves you deeply 
Maybe this letter to the church at Pergamum is God's way of getting your attention in a new way to tell you to listen. Grace without truth isn't love. Maybe you're on the opposite side of this. Maybe you're on the opposite side of this message and there's someone who needs to hear your truth. You've sat with your lips zipped. You've got lots of reasons for that. You don't want to look self-righteous. You don't want to look holier than thou. You just want to be liked. Why is God asking you to, to have courage? Is God asking you to make a sacrifice and deal with the drama that will inevitably come? And speak up. Maybe you have a friend, someone that you love, and you have been praying, oh God, get their attention. Oh God, get their attention. Help them to see the way this is headed. Oh God, send someone to get their attention. Now, I can't say this for sure, but what if that someone... Is you. The person who most perfectly embodied this is Jesus himself. Years before this letter of Revelation, the same apostle John wrote a book about his experience with Jesus. We refer to it as the Gospel of John. And as he introduces the reader to his Lord, he uses these words, John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message to the church at Pergamum, our message for today grace without truth isn't love. Let's ask God to help this message sink in. Lord, in these moments, we pause to say thank you for getting our attention. May our hearts be open to hear your word. For my friends who have been resistant to letting others speak into their lives. Make us open. Make us humble. Give us ears to listen. Give us a soft heart that will seek to understand the experience of other people around us. May we not perceive it as hurt or harm. May we not perceive their feedback as a threat. Help us to see it as a gift. I pray for those among us who have had trouble speaking up. Lord, as you instructed the church at Pergamum, we repent. 
we repent of those times when we unwisely remain silent. Lord, I pray that you'd put on our hearts the names, the faces of those individuals you, you want us to reach out to. Maybe it's someone we love who needs to hear our truth. Maybe it's someone we haven't connected. We haven't connected with for a while. Someone we used to go to church with a long time ago, but we're not sure where they're at and what they're doing. May our eyes be open. May our, may our hearts be sensitive to the possibility that you may be calling us to reach out, speak up, or speak into their lives with grace and truth. No matter where we are in this spiritual journey, may you take the words of this text and may they sink into our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's talk about some homework. Here's your first assignment for the week. Perhaps the most obvious assignment. Maybe you need to become a gracious truth teller. How do you do that? Here's one way to start. Prayerfully consider how you might spur someone toward love and good deeds. Prayerfully consider how you might inspire someone toward love and good deeds. Put some thought into this. Who is there in your life that, that, that might need a little gracious truth? Now, before you do this, I got to tell you, make sure to check your ego at the door. Don't walk into that conversation with any need to win, any need to be right. If you walk into that conversation with an attitude of, I told you so, you are not ready to walk into that conversation. Take the advice of Henry Cloud. Dr. Cloud says, the amount of truth a relationship can handle is proportional to the amount of perceived love that's present. Let me read that again. The amount of truth a relationship can handle is proportional to the amount of perceived love that's present. Well, I love them. They should know that I love them. But if God calls you to be the truth teller, my advice, brace yourself for their reaction. Expect a little drama. Be pleasantly surprised if you don't get it. There's another assignment. Become a gracious truth teller. Maybe you need to find a gracious truth teller. Maybe you need to prayerfully consider who might spur you toward love and good deeds. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Here's one way to know if you do. Has anyone brought you a difficult truth about yourself in the last 30 days? Outside your career. Outside a 360 degree review. I'm talking, has someone brought you a truth about your love of God and your love of others? A, a, A difficult truth about your faith, about your fear, about your anger, about your impatience. If no one has brought you a difficult truth in the last 30 days... It's possible you don't need feedback because you're doing great. 
But it's also possible you have walled yourself off from it by avoiding it, deflecting it, debating it, rationalizing it away so people have just given up. You have people in your life who can speak truth to you. Here are a few books to recommend. Uh, There's one I recommended back earlier this year when we studied Philippians, Crucial Conversations. Um, Crucial Conversations, one of the most important books I've ever read. It is not a religious book, but it is a brilliant book. And what this book will do is take you step by step through how to have a difficult conversation in a way that still makes the person feel loved. Earlier we read, consider how we might spur one another toward love and good deeds. Give careful consideration to how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Think about it. Most of us don't even think about this. And we get it wrong. Chances are, if you walk into that conversation trusting your instincts, (laughs) no, go to school on how to do this. Learn. Learn what it's like to be on the other side of a difficult conversation. Learn how to make that person feel safe. Make, uh, learn how to make that other person feel like they know you're for them. You love them. You adore them. This book will help. Here's another one. How to have that difficult conversation you've been avoiding. Uh, this one I've recommended to you before as well. It, it's simple. Easy, practical, step-by-step on how to have a difficult conversation. The dedication of this book is to all who seek to make truthful conversations a central part of all relationships. Check out this book. And finally, here's one more for parents. Raising Great Kids by Drs. Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Look at the subtitle. If you can't read it, I'll, I'll read it for you. Parenting with Grace and Truth. Usually as parents, we tilt in one direction over the other. Some of us are really good at grace. Some of us are really good at truth. And what if we could approach our parenting with a balance of both? Because both are essential. Please stand with me. These books are available in our bookstore. I think we probably sold out of, I think we were almost out of Crucial Conversations a little earlier. I don't know what's available back there. Check it out if you want to pick up one before you leave. If not, grab them on Amazon, grab them on audio, but all three of these are available on audio. If you like to listen to an audio book, it's a great way to power through books while you're multitasking, and it's a good way to fill your soul and fill your mind with some great things, so check that out. A couple resources for you to take with you as well. This image of this verse, Hebrews 10, 24. You can download that image from our online bulletin and from our social media accounts later this week. Commit this verse to memory. Put it into application in your life, in your relationships. Also, this graphic. Grace without truth isn't love. Now, I want to tell you one more thing. And I don't know if this is an advertisement or a warning. Next week, we are going to study the letter to the church at Thyatira, and we will be looking at a New Testament theology of sex. So invite your friends. (laughs) Well, really, it'll probably be just fine for them.
And I hope you can make it next weekend. If you came with a need, we'll have some people ready to pray for you. Make your way up to the front. Invite them to do so because they are looking for an opportunity to serve you in this way and, 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 and using their faith, leaning on their faith in a hard season. For all of you, this is my prayer. May the Lord give you the wisdom to know when to speak, the courage to say it, and the love to say it right. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.